our one skill to encourage our autistic high school graduates to practice is self-advocacy. She's a mental health counselor and author of two books, including Raising Twice Exceptional Children, a handbook for parents of neurodivergent gifted kids, and a podcast host of the Neurodiversity Podcast. Here are her 12 great ideas to help us encourage self-advocacy. When we teach how to advocate for accommodations, our young adults are more likely to do it. And so we need to give them a formula. More about that in just a minute. But once they practice that formula over and over again, they're going to be able to do it so much better when they're more on the spot and a little less anxious to be assertive. What we want to do, and here's the formula, is we want to name our strengths and our struggles plus what helps. So part of my brain, here's an example. Part of my brain is quite anxious. And I find that that helps me notice a lot of things that other people overlook. It also can cause paralysis when I'm faced with a task that I've never faced before. So what really helps me is a heads up on anything new or novel at work so that I can address I can be more comfortable addressing that challenge. So we started with the strength. We moved on to what the struggle can be and what helps. Notice it, I didn't reveal any diagnosis. I'm not even sure that those are useful in most situations. I mean, diagnoses are very helpful. We're dealing with um, the healthcare system. And it can also be a shortcut for explaining what's going on if we don't have a lot of time. But overall, I think it's much better if we describe what's happening and what can help so that we're both better informed about what it is that needs to be accommodated. So where do we start? She argues that we start with what is most noticeable. Makes sense to me. If you notice that I am, for example, using a twiddler in my fingers or, you know, rocking back and forth or tapping my foot, those can be stems which help to calm us inside. So maybe those need an explanation. You'll notice that from time to time I am fidgeting. I am... Um, doodling while you're speaking, or I am, you know, moving, rocking kind of slowly back and forth. Those are actions I take to help calm myself inside because sometimes I, parts of my brain can be very anxious. So it helps me to know that you think um, you understand what's happening and you're not bothered by it. That could be, you know, another way to start with what's most noticeable 
and explain, you know, how that helps. And at the other, at the same time, there's the other side of it, which, you know, I can worry about how you're going to react to it, but it, you know, together, if we can accommodate the fact that that is a useful skill for me, it's a great compensatory strategy, please, you know, let me know, tell me what your reaction is. And so that we're on the, on the same page. Here's where we figure out what's most noticeable. We ask, rather than assume that we know what is most important to our uh, autistic high school graduates, it's always best to ask first what they think, because who's going to implement the solution? Our autistic high school student is going to implement the solution, and it's much more likely to be implemented if it's their solution, if it's their solution to a problem that is most important to them. That's why we need to discover. And we discover it through listening. So we can start the conversation by saying, I noticed that you haven't left your room for anything other than going to the bathroom or taking a shower or getting food out of the refrigerator in five days. And that's where we state the facts. And then we stop. Or we could say, I'm, I'm uncomfortable um, and I miss you. There's another statement that tells them where we're coming from. And then we listen. I prefer the method of doing the reflective listening technique where we first capture their emotion. And sometimes all we need to say is whether we've noticed that they're comfortable or uncomfortable. So it doesn't have to be, you know, a poet's specificity. Sometimes what gets the process starting is just noticing whether we're uncomfortable or not or comfortable. Then we reflect what they said as a statement, a short statement, and the whole reflection should be less than 15 words. Because what we're trying to do is restate what we're seeing, not just parrot their words, because sometimes that can make them feel um, like we are making fun of them, which is not at all our intention. So if we say, you seem uncomfortable because you're just, you had an awkward conversation at school or at work or with a family member. Good for us to state what it is that they're uncomfortable with. Then we solve the problem using the collaborative, proactive solutions process presented by Dr. Ross Green at his website, livesinthebalance.org. We start out with the facts, we listen to their perspective first, then we share ours very succinctly because we know that, they, that their brain has limited bandwidth for listening. And then we come to the solution together. And the solution is always to use the scientific method. That's where we put out a hypothesis. We agree to test. We implement the test and then we review the results. So an example would be, 
my hypo I think that it might be helpful if I were to cue you at the dinner table, if I see your resting your head on your chin. And my cue is going to be, you know, tapping my cheek. How does that, you know, my hypothesis is that you need a cue. My suggestion, my suggested experiment is I'm just going to tap my cheek. And you're going to say, is that all right or not? And you're going to agree together as to whether or not that's a solution that works for them. And then we go do the experiment. And we see if it does indeed work or not. And we trust that scientific process over and over again to discover what works for our autistic high school graduate. Because there isn't a magic wand that we can wave or a rule book that we can read that is going to solve their problems. They create the best solutions for the problems that they care most about, and they do something about that. And that's what we need to keep in mind. Where are we in that Goldilocks process of trying to decide whether or not we are enabling or accommodating? And so, okay, enabling is doing it for them. Accommodating is helping them design solutions that they implement. Make sense? It's kind of a pretty clear line between the two. If we're doing it, we're enabling. If they're doing it, they implement. But still, there's that middle part where we scaffold, we put supports in place in the form of cues, in the form of um, you know, whatever we do, physical, like putting something, a sticky note on the, on the mirror, whatever it is, a note in the phone, an alarm on the phone, whatever it is that we decide is the best thing to, to implement. And then we go forward, seeing whether or not, you know, those are going to work. So if those work for a while and we practice it over and over again, we can start experimenting with removing the scaffolding. We don't want to do this too quickly. Our autistic high school graduates need a lot of repetition before they will adopt a new behavior as part of their normal way of being. Frankly, all of us need a lot of repetition before we adopt a new way of being. Why are there so many New Year's resolutions about whether or not we're, you know, whether we're going to exercise? It's because adopting that behavior change is hard. It takes time, it takes repetition, it takes really being committed to ourselves to make that change. So if we notice ourselves struggling with change, it's so much easier for us to have compassion for our autistic young adults who are being asked to change. This is, a, this is the one that I think is really good, is that if we start naming our brain and we look at it in parts, then we can speak to those parts as if they were a young child with compassion. And most of the things that come up fall into two categories. I'm not good enough, or my world is, something wrong is happening in my world. And so if we say, okay, my brain is worried that I'm not good enough, 
that there's a part of my brain that worries that I'm not good enough. Let me talk to that part of my brain as if it were a young child with compassion saying, I get it. I understand that you're worried that you're not good enough. You're not a good enough mom. You're not a good enough girlfriend, boyfriend, student, worker, all the various roles that we have in our lives. Tell me about that. What's going on with that? When do you do you when do you remember yourself feeling that way? Maybe in your you know a long time ago. Let's let's figure out what were some of the thoughts and let's tease those out and see if we can't look at them and and say, okay, now that we're where we are now, what what might be helpful to that young child if we could offer them you know something something that they might consider thinking instead. Fascinating way to tear, tear, uh, uh, you know, to separate out what's going on with our brain, to slow things down and really find out what solutions work best for us, what thoughts really do work to produce the results we want. The ninth concept the ninth concept that Emily suggests is that people are only disabled if they aren't accommodated. <laughs> yeah, I have a very good friend I've known since she was very young, well, since she was a baby, who is deaf. And it would be completely ridiculous for me to just speak to her without accommodating her deafness. I don't, I'm not a signer, but I certainly know where Otter is. And so often I can just speak into my phone and hand it to her and it's right there. So I'm accommodating her deafness. She's accommodating the fact that I don't have the skill to sign. So it's really a two way street. And that's why when we ask for accommodations in the world, especially in the work world, it's appropriate for us to think of it as accommodating both parties. I have a brain that is autistic and part of it causes, you know, part of it is, is worried often. And so that's how the, it shows up. It's a good thing because I'm a very conscientious worker and it shows up sometimes when you, when I'm put in a situation that I couldn't, that I didn't know was going to happen. So it's really helpful to me if you tell me about it. So now I'm asking for an accommodation and I'm also telling her or him or they what they can do because they didn't have the skill of how to accommodate me before. Now they have the skill, at least a piece of a part of a skill that can help them get the best from me as somebody who really wants to be employed by them and do the very best job we can. So it's a two way street. And we need to just recognize that when we don't accommodate, that's when something disabling occurs. That's when we don't notice what works and, and make it happen. And of course, then if it's not happening, then we don't get the result we want. So people are only disabled if they aren't accommodated and it's a two way street. The 10th great idea she has, as she explains in her podcasts, in her book, and in the interview that, she, that 
I was able to listen to listen to with Seth Perler at the Executive Online Functioning Summit is that when we scaffold and provide lots of practice, then slowly remove that scaffolding. Now we're transferring the responsibility to our autistic high schools graduate. And that is a process that can be take years and it could take months. So let's pick the one thing that our autistic young adults are most interested in, figure out what scaffolding they need, and then together figure out whether or not it's working. And if it's working, practice it, and then together decide which parts of the scaffolding can be removed. And then try that. And maybe it needs to be put back in, but we're doing it together, which builds connection. And that's certainly what we want to do because we really do love our autistic young adults all the way down to their toenails. She suggests, Emily suggests also that the, one of the biggest struggles that she's noticed with her clients and in her own family, because she's also a mom of three, that mapping time visually in blocks is so helpful. So with in the art of adulting, when I work one-on-one -on -one with a client, we use Google Calendar, the Google Calendar, and we start to map out what their day, their masterpiece day is going to look like, chunk by chunk. And that way, they can kind of see, oh, this is how I'm investing my time. The one thing that is finite. Money is not finite. You can always make more money. But time is finite. So I want to be just as careful with the way that I invest that as I am with the way that I invest my money. And visually makes the biggest difference she's found with her clients. That Google Calendar is a really good place to start doing that in time blocks. Her final suggestion is that we have straightforward talks about uncomfortable topics. Because the topic is there whether we acknowledge it or not. And it's always better to sit down and use that collaborative, proactive solutions process where we find the facts that we can agree on and then hear what the other one person's thinking, feeling, and actions are and what that's creating and then share what ours are. I call it steer mapping. The situation is always outside of our control. Those are the facts. The thoughts, the emotions, the actions are all in our control and they produce the results and they always tie back to our thinking. And there's space here between our thoughts and uh, between our, the situation and our thoughts. And that's where we have the freedom and the power to decide how we want to think because our thoughts are going to flavor our emotions and our actions and create our results. They're always tied back to our results. So having straightforward conversations where we state the facts, then we tell them, we listen using that therapeutic silence to really listen and hear and reflect back what they're saying. Then we share our dear map, which gives them a perspective that they need to consider. And boy, is that something that we can practice is perspective taking. All of us can practice that more. 
because there's a thousand ways to think about all these millions of ways, probably billions of ways to think about any given set of facts. And we want to share what ours are so that the two of us together can knit together an experiment that we're willing to try. I think she's really got it when she summarized what we need to consider because all of the actions, all of these 12 actions is helping our autistic young adults self-advocate. They're finding the words to describe what goes on inside their brain and what helps and what we can all do together to create the solutions that work best for them. She's nailed it. And I look forward to um, interviewing her this Friday at 11 o'clock, June 10th, 2022. If you're watching this past that date, you'll notice that there is a video of her conversation with me right next to this one on our blog page. To find Emily, you can go to her website and to find that video, our, the, this video and the others of, um, the other one of our conversation this Friday, you can go to my blog at lindsaydavison.com forward slash blog. I so look forward to implementing as many of these suggestions as I can with my own family. Bye for now.